The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Well, good morning. It's, uh, it's always interesting as I'm sitting, a minute before I'm coming up here, what's going through up here. And uh, it's, it's really cool. Um, well, I taught BSF for a, a number of years, and um, so I was required to lead in the opening hymns, too, which I am a musical invalid. Uh, if you look at me most of the time, I'm not singing. It's, it's, I don't want to say I don't have something to contribute, but it's, I, I just, it, it blesses me listening to what's going on. And it was funny, because when I would open the, the music, I would just start the hymn, and they'd turn my mic off immediately. <laughs> they just want to make sure we got out the front door. And what's cool is the hymn, How Great Thou Art. If you've ever been blessed, um, when we, we study Genesis, have a hundred be facing 150 men singing that toward you. And, and it just ministers. It, it, you feel this. It's just an empowerment of God's presence, of his goodness. And um, so I was kind of just going through this. And listening to Megan, it's just um, it, it's really cool um, to see what this grace does. Um, my caption this uh, morning is nothing but the truth, and we're going to talk, I've just broken it down into three parts, the truth about salvation, the truth about Jesus, and the truth, truth about grace. Um, so I open up with this question, you know, for us in our culture in this day and age, where does the average person go for truth? Uh, if you need reliable answers, where do we go? And it being Mother's Day, it would, would only be fitting to open up with a story about a little girl who uh, comes to her mother and looking around and starting to say, where did all these people come from? And she goes to her mom and says, Mom, would you tell me, where do people come from? And so mom gives her the story of creation, that God created us in his likeness and image, placed us in the garden, and from there it all comes about. Little girl's a little, you know, does something sound a little off there maybe for a little girl who starts thinking about this garden in Adam and Eve? So she, she consults the second most reliable source in her household, and that's her dad. She goes to her dad, who's an unbeliever, and um, says, well, dad, where did uh, people come from? And he gives her the story of evolution, that way back when, thousands and millions of years ago, we evolved from monkeys and apes. Now the little girl's really perplexed now. She returns to her mother and tells her the story. She, Mom, I went to dad, and, and she said... Uh, Dad said we evolved from monkeys and apes, to which the mother replied, well, at least that explains where your father's side of the family came from. <laughs> so it's, uh, some of us men have an excuse, at least, although not plausible, but for what it's worth. So, um, you know, where do we go again? Um, you know, there are a lot of things, a lot of those issues in our culture today that are lightning rod issues. Um, I think about homosexuality. You have people saying it's a uh, genetic makeup, maybe it's a choice, it's a sin, or maybe it's all of the above. I hear all this on global warming, and, and you, know, you kind of scratch your head and say, well, maybe the globe is warming, but maybe it has nothing to do with us, or maybe it is warming, and what can I do about that anyway? Um, wh what about um, the truth about life and death and what happens later on? I had a friend who... Um, Grew up with a brilliant dad. His dad was a scientist at Bell Labs. They developed analog technology, this like big brain stuff. And he says, I remember going to my dad. He was 10 years old. He walks in and says, Dad, where do you go when you die? And his father says, they put you in a box and you rot. Good night. And walked out. 
I mean, that's, again, where, where do you go with that as we go out into the real, this world out there with that serving as a foundation for the end? I wonder about sickness a lot of times. Is sickness from our environment, maybe our sin, a genetic malfunction? It's the food we eat. I got, I'm sure it's the food we eat. I'll say that. The kids cook things lately in the microwave that I go, that ain't food, you know. That don't belong there. Keep it away from the table. It's, it's not good. Uh, there's something wrong with that. So um, may, maybe we have genetic malfunctions. Maybe there's not enough sleep. Boy, I, I'd be dying right now if it wasn't for, if, if I didn't, uh, I don't get enough sleep. Uh, maybe no exercise, or maybe it's a little bit of everything else. This is funny. What about high cholesterol? I got family members that cholesterol is like screaming high that are like 85 years old. It's like, well, it didn't kill them yet, did it? <laughs> so, you know, you wonder. I, I was thinking about this, the... Um, the issue with vitamin D levels, like I had tests on last winter, you're vitamin D deficient. And then I sit down with me with my brother-in-law, who's this renowned physician. He goes, well, it seems like maybe the FDA heightened the level for vitamin D so everybody's vitamin D deficient. It's like, where do you go with that? I mean, is it a conspiracy now to sell supplements or something? So what about the public and absolute truth? This is, this is really fascinating. Barnum, Barnum Research did a, did a study. They do, you know, obviously periodic studies. In 1997, they, they asked people that do you believe that there are moral truths which were unchanging or absolute? And so they found 50% of Christians believe that, which to me, I don't know whether to, to you know, to cover myself in you know, sackcloth and dust and weep, or to rejoice, right? You don't, I mean, it's, it's crazy, just only half, but well, half is pretty good at the end of the day. And 25% of non-Christians believed it, which was a shock to me, I would think less. So in January 2000, they do the study again, and they found out that 38% of adult Americans believe in absolute truth, just blanket. Two years later, not even, um, well, almost two years later, November 2001, another Barna poll comes out, and the number dropped in half. Less than two years, only 22% of Americans believe that that absolute truth existed. And the question is, did they fudge the math? Did something go horribly wrong? And the question I just opened with is what could have changed the minds of millions of Americans to throw to the wayside the belief that there's absolute truth? So, I'll tell you later. We are through with what I call the Woodshed Series in Corinthians. Uh, it's nice to be out of the Woodshed Series, too. It's Because it's, uh, they find me in the backyard all the time. So, at the Woodshed, they just walk me to it. They don't take me out of the house. So it's, uh, we covered this, it was a series of, as we went through Corinthians, just basically you have problems with your church and Paul's going to address it. And then we, we kind of changed gears where, where there was a transition to more of the worship and the collective body, the formalities on worship, the need for reverence, celebrating the Lord's Supper and doing communion. Paul addressed the gifts, the function of spiritual gifts, how the respective individual body parts of the whole body of Christ works. Um, the lasting importance of love over all things, and then the gifts of prophecy and tongues and how to conduct orderly worship. So this morning we changed gears. There's another change of thought here. And it seems that there were people that had kind of, for various reasons, come into the Corinthian church and became Christians, um, but did not fully buy the concept of the resurrection. Thus we have the whole chapter, 58 verses, um, addressing this issue of 
the resurrection, whether it's of Christ, whether it's of the believer, uh, and this new body concept. So that, that um, is where we're going to be spending our time. I don't have a lot of, um, I've only got 11 verses. Um, what did I just do? Oh, my, my clock is working good. I got an otter box that's no longer an otter box. The thing is completely falling apart. So I have to like push my phone four times to get anything to happen. So, so we're covering this morning just the specifics of Christ's resurrection. And then we're going to look in the next couple weeks over um, the general vict- our own victory over death and then the coming bodily resurrection. Um, within the church, it's interesting, even in Jesus' day, there were groups of people. Uh, the two main religious classes in, in Israel in Jesus' day were the Pharisees and the um, Sadducees. And the Pharisees were kind of the letter of the law, the orthodox guys. Jesus said, do what they say, don't do what they do, because they still didn't have it going on. And then this other liberal branch was the Sadducees, and they were like easy, easy going. They did not believe in the resurrection of the body. So it was kind of, again, the lights just go out. And so with that, there seems that there were people, and there were a lot of other views, but some of the Jews that got converted clearly dragged that into the Corinthian church. Um, and, and Paul, it's interesting, this is not one of those issues that, that you would classify as an open-handed issue, meaning we can come or go with this. The resurrection of Christ is a big deal. It's a core foundational issue. So so Paul obviously spends a lot of time addressing this. Um, it's also what Paul does here in Corinthians is, is backstop again. When you have basic truths of scriptures, if you read any book in the Bible, you're going to see when there's an opportunity these foundational truths being brought to light. And that's what we call doctrine or our core theology, meaning there are some things that we hang our hat on as Christians, and these things are essential, and without them, we don't get to leave we don't collect 200, we don't pass, nothing happens. Um, it stops, everything hinges upon these issues. And, and the big deal with the resurrection is this. In the garden, God said that if you, if you disobey me with regard to that tree and you eat of it, that you will surely die. So we know that sin is the culmination of defiance toward God or disobedience toward God. That's the full fruit of it. So if Christ did not physically, uh, was not physically resurrected, Um, it would indicate that, A, there was sin within Christ and that he had no power over death. So if you turn it inside out by the fact that he was able to be resurrected, it means that he had the authority over sin. And more so, not only did he have authority over sin, but he was sinless, which means that as uh, the, the sacrificial death he suffered for us, he had to be a suitable sacrifice. And if he had sin, he wouldn't have proven to be that suitable sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of God. So the point is that he did not have sin and that he overcame death supports our beliefs that there is victory over death, that Christ was a suitable sacrifice, and that we in turn, if he has authority over death, that that authority over death not only is for him but for us as well, meaning that we will have a resurrection which we share with him. So having said that, that's, that's kind of where we're going and why it's a big deal. So let's open up the truth about salvation. Um, I'm going to read from the ESV. It says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you've received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So the gospel, this gospel message I'm going to bring up in the next section, but that issue 
Um, we, I, kinda, I did the questions for small group this week, and I baited that one question, does this mean if you don't hold fast, you lose your salvation? And really, that's an incredibly poor reading of the scripture. When you hear this term, hold fast, you think, well, if I don't hold fast, what does that mean? Like, can I lose this? And holding fast was more like simply saying that if you hold to this belief, that if you really believed what we said, um, and King James actually uses the words um, that if you remembered what I said. So it's really a passage that if you don't kind of look behind and read it in context, you're going to miss. It's easy to misconstrue it grossly. Um, so having said that, it's basically this, that if you... If, uh, let me get my wording right here. I put something in bold, and obviously when I put it in bold, um, that's what I want to give you. Um, so if, if, if what you, here's what he's saying, this concept of it, it was in vain. It's that if you didn't believe this gospel message, that there is a resurrection of Christ in, inside of the, packed into this message, that what you believe was meaningless. See, if I give you a creed to believe, but it makes no difference in the end, it's a meaningless belief. You've believed in vain. So what he's saying is that, that if resurrection isn't part of this package, your, your belief says it's vain. It doesn't, it's not going to have any impact on you in the final analysis. So that is what he's, he's saying. So if you believe this message, and as part of that message there was the resurrection, you will have eternal life. And to believe that message is good news because in the end it has a real impact on where you spend eternity. So, having said that, I hope that kind of just clear, clarify a little bit of this. I think about the beliefs. You know, lies are everywhere in our culture today. And, and we hear things on a regular basis. There's a, um, in, in Adolf Hitler's reign, there was a guy, named, I believe it's Joseph Goebbels, who was basically the master of um, media manipulations on a biblical scale. This guy knew how to, and one of his things was that if you say this enough, 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 you'll believe it to be truth. So if I say there, there, there's an elephant in the dining room, there's an elephant in the dining room, well, and I keep saying it, you will be conditioned to simply accept the fact that that's the truth, which is crazy, because it's not the truth, right? So some of the beliefs, have you ever heard this in our culture, time heals all wounds? If that were truth, we would have no angry old people, right? <laughs> I mean, go. I was, I was shopping one time, and it's really kind of scary. There was a person at the counter who obviously was elderly, but they were one of the most angry people. It was like, it was just anger and bitterness was spewing from every pore. Um, we have nothing to fear but fear itself, right? Is that, does that sound, we go, well, that sounds, sounds good, right? But that's insanity. I fear Doberman's not on a leash. I fear the IRS, so I do dot my I's and cross my T's. You know, I fear flesh-eating bacteria, so you'll wash your hands, right? There's a lot of things out there to fear. Because fear prompts me to be careful so it's not going to happen. That's like Mark Twain says, I'm an old man. I've had great tragedies, many of which never occurred. And the, the point kind of is, is that you worry about all this stuff, and a lot of the time it prompts you to protect yourself from it happening, right? We have more to fear than fear itself, trust me. And, I, and if you're not, when people say I have no fear, it's like, well, your brain's not functioning right then. That's obvious. Um, you're the master of your own destiny, or you can do anything you want as long as you try hard enough. Don't tell that to your five-year-old kid, by the way. Bad mother if you tell that to your kid, right? It's Mother's Day. I'm going to throw the stones. See, I don't like Mother's Day. 
But I'll tell you, when I taught on Father's Day, I, I wanted to banish Father's Day too. So if I would banish my own holiday, certainly I can do that for the women, right? Um, it's uh, no. <laughs> I didn't want to make a comment on that, right? We don't want to go there. So, you know, and, and let me say something about Megan. Um, I rejoice in Doxa. I rejoice if, if, if you want to see grace, and I'm going to close with talking about the grace of God. But, but if you want to go find out what Christianity is, go find people who, who have had nothing um, to give them tools, skills, and abilities, but who have fully yielded their lives to Christ. And, and then you watch. You watch God on display in color. And that's happening here. That's why when I talk about Father's Day, a lot of us came here that day with a real bad reference to Father's Day. If you had an absent father, you had a father who beat you, a father who, who gave you these kind of truths to go live by, and then you go out into the real world and you find none of it works. Um, so I, I, I take each day. How about this? We just celebrate each day as a gift of grace from God and, and rejoice that he has found fit that we get to go out there and display who he is, and we celebrate that. And mothers get exalted in the meantime, so that's fine with me. All right. Um, if you broke it, you got to fix it. Man, that's not a good thing to say. I've broken some things you can't fix. I mean, go pick up the glass vase in a thousand pieces. You must, and again, tell a little kid this. We grow up into the world, and there we are. So, well, crazy stuff. If you are successful, you'll be happy. That's what the theme of every commercial, right? You'll be happy. Um, what about this? The, our culture, God wouldn't send a good person to hell. Um, boy, that's a damage, that's a, that's, that's a flag. Um, because how many good people are out there? If you take Romans chapter 3, there's none who doeth good, no, not one. So, God, God doesn't send good people to hell. He sends sinners to hell who are unrepentant and who don't receive the grace of God. And that's from the black letters of this book. I don't have anything else to say on it. Uh, Jesus was a prophet. I like that. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or the son of God. Pick, do your pick. Um, how about this from the world when they look at a church and Christians? I'm too messed up to become a Christian. If that's you here today, um, next week join us in the third row, right-hand side. You'll fit right in. You'll be good. We're fine with you. Uh, is, there's room for you. Um, but so, so there's the world. But what are some things that we as Christians take and think this is part of our theology. Um, I didn't realize this. I moved to the South, and I was told, boy, you shouldn't work on Sunday. I go, well, what do they do in the ER then? I mean, they just shut the thing. Don't break your leg on Sunday. You know, you're in trouble. Uh, don't have a power outage. And, and God forbid, don't let somebody break in your front door because the police aren't coming, right? Yeah, I just scratched my head on that one. I don't know. Um, unconfessed sin jeopardizes our salvation. That's because there's that passage in James that says, confess your sins to one another. Well, say I have a bad week and then I drop dead. Does that, does that mean my fire insurance, I'm just out the door? They revoke the policy based on that one? They, and some of these things bleed through. And we don't really say it. We insinuate it. And then you go home and you start carrying this stuff. And let me tell you, there's only enough room to carry the grace of God. Um, we have a grace-based gospel in this book called the Bible. As a Christian, we have to stop sinning or you're really not saved. There are groups of people that say, sin no more. Well, where do you go with that? By lunchtime. At least if you're me, I don't know where you go. Um, 
I, I've, I've heard people place emphasis on living according to certain passages of the Bible, and the one I really struggle with is the Sermon on the Mount. Somebody slaps you in the face, turn the other cheek. Well, I might be able to do that. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Now, I'm a lawyer. That really appeals to me. But nobody that I've ever gotten into some litigation with said, oh, lawsuit here. No, no, no. Take my car, too. Well, it's, I don't know. I don't think that works. Uh, whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him, too. Well, you got dragged the first mile. Who's walking the next one? And this next one is great. Uh, give to him who asks of you. So if anyone comes up to you, you have to give whatever they ask of you, right? We'd all be broken homeless. And from him who wants to borrow, from you don't turn away. I, you know, I struggle because here's what it's saying. It's saying that if you do this, you'd be okay with God. The problem is, is that in my well of humanity, it's been poisoned by sin. Not only from my father, but from myself and from my surroundings. And there's, the only thing that I'm able to do to extract that sin is, is let God's grace flood it and cover it up. And that's how that thing works. What about this? God wants us to be happy. Does God want you to be happy? Let me tell you, every time holiness and happiness compete, happiness always gets put on the back of the bus. God doesn't, and I'm not saying there isn't fruit and joy in this gospel. What I'm saying is that, that if our goal is happiness, we're going to be sorely um, hurt, uh, disillusioned in that. God would never intentionally cause pain or suffering. Let me say it this way. Um, when my kids were real young and they spit peas on their brother or their sister, and I gave them a little crack, I was inflicting pain, and it was an intentional, with the hope that they would keep the peas in their mouth with the next mouthful, right? And so how much more so does God do that with us, even as adults today? And the good news is, is that he does it because only a father, only a parent disciplines his kids. You go look at children out in public, and I've never disciplined anyone else's kids. I have wanted to many times. <laughs> Very different. I have thought, well, I ought to. And my wife goes, don't do it. You'll go to jail. <sighs> Virtue once again comes to the top, and I refrain from beating my neighbor's kid. Maybe that's what happens. Horrible, horrible. It's, you're getting the unedited version today. Um, Christianity isn't the only way to heaven. Do we hear that? that, that there's got to be another way for those other people out there. Um, and if you sit around and you listen, you're going to hear people hedge that one. Well, I'm not really sure. I listened to a guy that I really respected um, in person, like one of, my, one of my theological heroes, and I'm not going to give you his name. He passed away. But somebody, I got a monthly newsletter, read it all the time. And I remember this guy. The question was this that was presented to him. With all the Jews who died in the Holocaust, how could God have turned his back on those people? Did every one of those apart from Christ go to hell was the question. Good question, by the way. Hard question, but good question. And this person said there might be some other, other way that God could have taken care of them. Well, that means Calvary wasn't necessary. And if Calvary wasn't necessary, I've got a God who just turned into a monster because what he did to his son, if, it was, if there was another way to get around it, there was another way to get around it, then he should have done it. And a father that allows his son to suffer like that better have a good reason for it. And if there's another way to heaven, then that wasn't necessary. I love, this is a middle-of-the-road Bible teaching this morning, so it's very simple. It's just the basics of the gospel. You know, what about John 16, uh, excuse me, 14, 6? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That sounds intolerant, by the way, doesn't it? 
sounds exclusive. Well, I'll give you some more of that then. Acts 2.4, Peter, speaking at Pentecost, concerning Jesus, stated, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Well, let me give you another, because we might have misconstrued that. There might be a bad translation. 1 Peter 2, 5 through 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all. Colossians 1, 15 through 6 really tells the big picture. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Well, how much does that exclude? Not much. All right. For in him, Christ... All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, powers, or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. So really the truth about salvation is that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that no one does come to the Father except through him. That's just the black letters. And that's hard. That's hard to grasp. Because by inference... There's exclusion. And if that exclusion applies to those we like or those we care for or those we love or those who have passed before us, that's a lot to swallow. I say this. I was at a funeral one time for a guy who committed suicide, and, and, the, and the pastor got up and said, basically, um, I'm not going to stand here and, and not own that this man committed suicide. And he made a statement that was really profound, and I think it's a statement that I apply in my life. He says, there are many things for which we will not understand, but which we must trust God in. I say those are things above my pay scale. I'm not called to account for you before a holy God. And those circumstances on how you account and where you wind up in your walk and how you choose to live this life are not things that I'm accountable for. It's above my pay scale. And I believe that everybody gives, that God gives every human being and in in, in the way he chooses and sees fit to present a choice. And, and there's a mystery behind that to compound matters when I use the word choice. Because theologically, there are some things that indicate maybe there wasn't a choice. I don't have time to go there today. So, the truth about Jesus, second se section. Uh, For I deliver to you, as of first importance, what I receive. That Christ died for the sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter. So a lot of you guys said, who's Cephas? Who's Cephas? I want to know. Peter. And um, <laughs> then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all. As to one untimely born, he appeared to me. The untimely born is really interesting. If you think about when a child is born, in an untimely manner. In old Hebrew days, they didn't have a little baby warmer to put them in and, and give them extra oxygen. These children died if they were born in a premature or untimely manner. And Paul is referring to himself, last of all, as one untimely born. It's cursed. That if your child comes out too soon, that child's cursed because he's probably not going to make it. And Paul says that is where the category he fits himself into. I thought that was really fascinating as to this one untimely born, he appeared to me. So historically, there are no disputes about Jesus Christ. If you look back from a secular standpoint, nobody will argue that a man named Jesus Christ appeared, had 12 disciples. Um, nobody's really arguing about him being executed after a uh, conviction in a kangaroo court where they threw out every law to protect a person from an unjust capital punishment. None of that's being disputed today, historically. 
So that's all out there. Now, there is a problem with the body, depending on who you want to believe, because we know in the latter parts of the Gospels, they talked about that they put a Roman guard at the tomb, big stone. Roman guard was 16 centurions. These were your Navy SEALs of the military back in the Roman days. And you had 16 men. Four would stand at the door. And then the other 12 were rotating in, a, in those shifts of six hours. So when those four got done, another four stepped in. Now, some could be sleeping, but you always had 16 men standing in that immediate vicinity. And so scripture says that when the angel appeared, stone rolled away, Christ came out, they fled. And um, so what they paid people off to say the body was missing and the disciples stole it. A bunch of scared, untrained um, men who just watched their leader get executed, they went and broke through a Roman guard and stole the body. Or, or, as for us, as Christians, we believe the body was resurrected. Which is crazy, by the way. If, 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 you're, if you have another religion out there and you say, well, I believe in, I got a Maine Coon cat. I believe in Maine Coon cat religion. And my cat died and it was resurrected. I'm going to say you got a problem here. You've got a real, I don't believe in this resurrection of the Maine Coons. Um, so that really, something that was dead is living now is pretty extreme. It's even worse, though, in this case, because Scripture says that God got Mary pregnant, too. So just before you get there, there's a lot to swallow in what we say as Christians. And I'm going to back that up, because it's one thing to say that we've got some crazy beliefs, but then it's another thing to give living proof and evidence in a human being as to this resurrection power. So we hear about this word, and I love this. It says that... Uh, According to the scriptures, according to the scriptures, um, Psalm 22, there was a lot of scripture that talked about Christ. And, and Psalm 22 says this, all who, all who see me mock me, they hurl insults, insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say, let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. A lot of hymns there, but it's talking about Jesus and God. Um, that was the, the insults hurled at Christ as he, as he lay, not lay, but on a cross, dying. Those were the rebukes given to him. Somebody must have consulted Psalms, or this is a bizarre coincidence. Dogs surround me, verse 16. A pack of villains encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Verse 18, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Now, that's written a 1,000 years, eight, 900 years before he showed up. And then we read in John 19, 23 through 24, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, divided them into four shares, one for each of them. With the undergarment remaining, the two, the, this garment was seamless, woven into one piece from top to bottom. Let us not tear it, they said to one another. Let us decide by lot who will get it. This happened that scripture might be fulfilled. That said, they divided my clothing among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Isaiah 53, it's an amazing passage. To whom has our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty that attracted us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him, in, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our inequity. 
The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. It continues on and on and on, according to the scriptures. So where does this get us? This, this dead guy was killed, but came back from life, appeared to a ton of people. That's the message really here. Paul's saying, look, I'm going to give you physical evidence, most of these people are still alive, that this guy was resurrected bodily. And that's really going to serve as the foundation for the balance of, of where we're going in all of this passage. Um, the big deal goes back to what, that, what the implications are of a resurrection from the dead that he had no sin, that he had authority over death, that he conquered death, and by identification with Christ that we, too, shall experience a resurrection from the dead. The truth about grace, verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. You know, it's fascinating. Um, Paul doesn't say, well, I was a rotten sinner. It's not, if, you're, if you really have a history, don't ever water it down. Because what it's doing is dulling the profound grace of God and what he has accomplished through you. Paul, Paul didn't say, I'm a rotten sinner. Paul said, I persecuted the church. See, he is saying, I'm owning what I did. Historically, Paul's reputation also, again, venom, venomous toward Christians is an understatement. Um, it's great that when God comes to Ananias, Paul is, is, is God confronts Paul on the road to Damascus. Right light, whom are you persecuting, he says. Um, and um, God sends Paul into Damascus, and he calls a guy by the name of Ananias, and he says, I want you to go and restore sight to Paul. And Ananias says, have you lost your flipping mind? God, no, 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 no. God, you don't understand who Paul is. This guy comes with a butcher knife for Christians. That's who Paul is. And then the words, and I can't give it verbatim, and he says, this man shall know what it means to suffer for the gospel. And I just goes, okay, fine with me. Off he goes. Uh, he's flexible all of a sudden when you hear from God. Isn't it interesting in the Bible how flexible we come when God comes and says, you're the one. You're the one. Maybe there's a little negotiation. Paul continues in verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Boy, let, let me say this today. If God's grace has entered your life, be okay with who you are. Be, I don't care what, like Megan, I'm going to say this, Megan, I asked Megan about her family. She said her family tree looks like a live oak. Okay? Be okay. I'm a drunk. Okay. I'm an adulterer. Okay. I'm a glutton. Okay. I'm a rotten sinner who stands in defiance to God. Okay. Because now we get to see what grace really does. And if I say, well, I wasn't that bad, you can't see the glory of God displayed through that grace. It's like saying, I'm going to light a candle or have a bonfire. And that flame is displaying to humanity the light of Christ. If you were a lot of wood before you got saved and now you're a bonfire, just say, I was a lot of wood. It's okay. Be okay. I am what I am. There's such freedom in that. It allows us to exhale and to say, when I drop the ball, I drop the ball. That's what fallen sinful men do. We can be okay with that. And then move on, though. Don't just say, I am what I am, and say, I'm not changed. Then go use the grace. 
take the grace and run with it. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and you believed. So how does this grace of God work in a man? This grace fills a hateful man with love for others. This grace drives one who was previously lost to show others the way. This grace replaces a feeling, uh, the fleeting desires with a knowledge of eternity. This grace replaces despair with hope. This grace drives a man to reach beyond his grasp. When he hears that's, I, I was called years ago to do something in ministry, and I said, that's crazy. Okay, good. You'll need the grace. If, if it's a pipe dream, there's only one way he'll get the glory. If you're struggling this morning saying, God, you know, I, I, I really know where you're calling me, but I think it's crazy, um, that's a good thing. Because if you could do it on your own, God would not get the credit. See, glory only takes place, but nobody, no, humanity can't miss the fact that God showed up in his life. Can you believe what happened to this guy? And they say, no, I can't. Ah, God will get the credit for that one. This grace extends forgiveness to the unforgivable. This grace gives a man the words of truth. Words that will never fail or mislead. Words that endure and prove the test of time. Words that can be trusted. Words that will make a difference. Words that are proclaimed which changes lives. Words which express the truth. And the closing thought here is the grace of God changes men. That's it. That's the deal. I don't pull myself up from my bootstraps. I don't get a, and, and again, I'm not saying we don't, we don't have a role or an effort to exert in this, in this endeavor. But it's God's deal. So in January of 2000, Barna poll shows 38% of Americans believe in absolute truth. Less than two years later, it's dropped almost in half to 22%. And the question would be, what would cause so many people to say, at one moment, I believe in absolute, immovable truth, and the next day to say, well, no, I don't think so anymore. What happened between November, excuse me, December of 2000, uh, what was it, the, uh, January of 2000 and November of 2001? What happened in September of 2001? And I would think that truth would shine greater in adversity well, what happened here is millions of Americans threw their faith aside as a result of 9-11. See, the numbers, are the, the numbers have an opposite impact. You have 38% believing before 9-11 and 22% believing after 9-11. And here's the truth. That adversity will reveal the truth. And if you have people who don't believe but they say they do and that adversity comes, by the wayside it goes. By the wayside, it is to believe in vain. To believe in vain. See, we have a gospel. We don't believe in vain. Because the truth, the truth, is that we have a God who's, who resurrected his son and claimed victory over sin. And that through belief in that son, my, my sin is covered. I'm made pure and white as snow. I am sinless before a holy God at this moment. 
I don't know if I've, I've told the story to many people. There was a story of these uh, in Russia. There was a Bible study going on. Two KGB come in with AK-47s and say, if you're willing to die for the gospel, um, stay here. If not, get out. Not, like, half the people in the room get up and walk out. And then the guys put down their AK-47s, open up their Bibles, and say, let's have a Bible study now. And, and the premise there was they said, we don't want to have the sheep mix in with the goats, so we want to sift them out real quick to make sure that if you're not willing to die for this gospel, we don't want to spend time mixing our faith with you. The adversity reveals. So if today you feel like you're getting dragged, and you're getting beaten, and you're getting kicked, let him be glorified. Maintain, retain, bank, invest in God's truth. And you'll find. Oh, that's not my phone. My time's up. That's pretty good. So, do we believe in vain today in this gospel of Jesus Christ? That's really the question. Do you know how you can tell if you have the truth? Here's your litmus test. It's real simple. I love the movie A Few Good Men with Jack. Nicholas is the golfer, my wife told me. Nicholson is the guy who's the actor, right? Okay, so in A Few Good Men at the end, you hear Tom Cruise. Uh, Jack Nicholson is on the stand, and he screams, I want the truth. And Nicholson goes, you can't handle the truth. I'm going to give you the truth, okay? I'm confident you can handle the truth. So how do you know if you have the truth? And again, if you don't this morning, it's okay. It's okay. But I would challenge you, spend some time alone with God and say, I want the truth. I want the truth. Give me the truth. Fill me with the truth. Let me receive the truth. That's what I would say. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth. But it gets better. So if Jesus is the truth, John 8, 32 tells you, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. A truth will set you free. It's not about a moral code or rules. It's about freedom. It's about freedom from slavery, from sin. Freedom about where you were raised. Freedom from what you've done in the past. It's about freedom from guilt, freedom from fear. Freedom from living a life of perpetual letdowns and disappointments. Freedom from condemnation. Freedom from feeling unworthy. You are worthy. Freedom from hopelessness. I hope this morning that you found the truth and that you welcome the truth, that you receive the truth and you rejoice in the truth. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.